0: Good evening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett. This week on the Roundup for Wednesday, April 5th, we're gonna be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. Before we get into those questions, we wanna thank those of you that are joining us live across our social media channels for SMIE Consulting on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, but also those who might be watching on repeat on those channels or catching the audio-only podcast version of The Roundup. Thank you for joining uh, the conversation today. Uh, As we do each week, we take our questions that we ask and answer here on The Roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Monday morning. Uh, Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, we deliver all the SMIE news fit to share. And in case you're wondering, all uh, the SMIE news means social media and international education news. And what I'm doing now is I'm dropping into the chat uh, the links for our most recent edition. Uh, we do an email version that you can subscribe to on our website, uh, and I'll drop a link to that as well, as well as a LinkedIn or excuse me, a LinkedIn version, as well as an email version of the. Uh, newsletter, All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And when we when we started SMIE Consulting almost, well, nine years ago now, uh, we uh, had a purpose uh, to bring institutions together uh, to find ways to better reach uh, students and educators around the world. And uh, part of that mission uh, is to deliver news that we know Uh, For most of you, you have full-time jobs that uh, take up more than most 40 hours a week of your time, and digesting all the news, international ed news that's out there not only in the United States but globally is hard to do. Uh, And That's one thing we've committed to at SMIE Consulting is to provide uh, both that newsletter that comes out on Mondays as well as this roundup on Wednesdays uh, to delve into some of the topics of the day that impact what we do in international education. So, as we do each week, we cover these three questions out of the themes that we see developing in that newsletter. And this week is no exception. Uh, we're starting off with a topic we cover fairly regularly on the Roundup, and that is the issue of China. What is new in China? And several things have happened, obviously, since the pandemic had uh, has run its course through most countries uh, and is uh, now re- uh, reopening for business in a lot of different ways. And there have been a number of articles that have popped up uh, in the past week that kind of uh, made sense to address um, what's happening in China as, as a concern. I'll share some things that we're doing at UNLV, where I work full time, uh, to, uh, to uh, share with you what, what, what our kind of takes are, hot takes are on what's going on in the country. First up, uh, as you know, most most everyone who's ever uh, tried to recruit students in China uh is all, if they've gone previously before the pandemic, had gone there, met students at fairs, uh, you were always, always asked for what's your WeChat uh what your WeChat handle is uh, or other social me- Chinese social media that are is unique to that country. Uh, behind the great firewall, uh, as they do not allow um, traditional Western social media platforms and even websites to penetrate uh, the Great Firewall, uh, that you need a VPN in order to, to get in, gain access to those. And many people do in China, but the greater majority don't. And to that end, recruiting digitally in China is going to be different than anywhere else in the world. Uh, and our friends over at Sonorbis uh, have been doing this uh, exclusively in China for a number of years, and they're now expanding towards the rest of uh, East Asia. And part of what they what they what they do is they focus on uh, on WeChat, on having a verified WeChat account for your university, giving you easy tools to manage it. Uh, they also provide a wealth of other information to show you uh, timing on when to post and the content that works best. And they provide that uh, service to you um, uh, as part of their package of, of services. So what is important about uh, Sonorbis uh, that I've I've come to know I've known the owner, uh, Nico. Uh, for a number of years, and uh, uh, I feel very confident that uh, the, they have the services that can help institutions really uh, get a foothold in how to recruit digitally in China, because you do need to have that, that presence, because as we talk about all the time uh, on the Roundup and, and, and any of my consults with universities, it's you have to have a presence where your audience spends their time. And in China, live where your audience lives means living on their social platforms, in their social ecosystem. So, artists will help you get there. To that end, they're having a webinar next week that will reflect some of those um, uh, their, the most common trends, our upcoming trends that they're seeing uh, in the Chinese market as it reopens and becomes uh, more reengaged with the rest of the world uh, beyond uh, the politics of their, of their, of their government. But uh, that's just one one piece of the China, what's new in China puzzle that we'll talk about today. Uh, Also, fairs, recruitment fairs, in-person recruitment fairs are back. Uh, And that's something that's happening uh, quite a bit. Um, uh, We're seeing a lot of international schools in particular that had had so many struggles of their own uh, during the pandemic with staff being forced to leave uh, with uh, uh, just because of the impossible nature of life in China during the pandemic when everything was on lockdown for months at a time, uh, that these schools are now back open and fully in person and are now meeting regularly with uh, university visitors, uh, particularly through fairs. And it's good to see those happening again. Uh, the challenge really is uh, uh, that, that some things that have allowed that to occur is obviously January 8th, uh, travel to China reopened for the rest of the world. Uh, that uh, China also recently reinstated the multiple entry 10-year visa uh, earlier in March. And that's that's a real bonus for those that are looking to recruit in China. So uh, I, I know for a fact I'll probably be in the next uh, in the next uh, year, at least um, once, maybe twice, heading to China for, if not just straight recruitment, but uh, certainly partnership work that I'll be, I'll be doing in-country. Uh, that's um, something that is now going to be possible. Right now, it isn't because flights are just outrageously expensive—ten thousand dollars for a direct flight into China from most U.S. airports. So uh, you have to go third countries or uh, go from within Asia to China to make it uh, cost-effective. So not saying that you wouldn't do that anyway, but that's—it's uh, extremely expensive if you're just going to China for events. So in terms of what's next uh, for, uh, for China, uh, as these fairs uh, begin to uh, reoccur, we've seen also Education USA is uh, proposing uh, fairs this fall in Shanghai and Beijing uh, to uh, help uh, reengage in person uh, with U.S. institutions and Chinese audiences. So it's uh, encouraging to see that happening. Uh, what uh, you're also seeing uh, is another trend on the back end in China more behind just the international school community which uh, the majority of student international or majority of Chinese students coming to the US are not coming through the international schools they're coming through uh, Chinese schools and the international sections of those schools which are different from straight international schools so I would say uh, A couple of the trends that we've just seen articles on in the last week that are particularly uh, relevant, I think, in terms of uh, how the Chinese market uh, is changing. And that's something that I think is uh, important to keep your finger on the pulse. We've heard that during the pandemic, we've seen uh, fewer Chinese uh, students coming to the U.S. That's obvious, obviously obviously that was impacted by the pandemic, but that was already happening a little bit before the pandemic. Uh, Twenty eighteen nineteen, we started to see significant declines in undergraduate Chinese students coming to the U.S. Uh, what uh, one of the what we've talked about previously here on the roundup is that students in China now have many more options and students that might have in the past only considered the U.S. are also looking at the U.K., at Australia, maybe even Canada as well as they look for options for higher education and they're being actively courted by all those countries. So as part of what we always say is having a global perspective means understanding who your competition is in the markets that you're trying to be most active in and engage students most directly. So knowing that, uh, how do you reposition yourself and your institution, your messaging, to reach them in a more direct approach to so talk specifically about the values, not just only of your institution and your programs, your location, but the United States as a whole and how the benefits for international students coming to the United States are, are quite significant and can be a real um, decider for some students, depending on where they are. So uh, where, what they're looking for, programs, all of that. Uh, and what the, what other countries they might be looking at as well, so uh, that's important. Another factor on how chi- China is changing, we've already seen this with uh, with the UK. We've seen fewer undergraduates starting to go to the U.K. as well uh, in in favor of their one-year master's programs. So uh, that demographic has shifted in in the U.K. where they're constantly on a one-year treadmill in terms of where the greater majority of their international students are coming from these days. So uh, one-year master's programs means you're you're turning and burning every year that same class that's coming in. So for them, recruiting uh, for one-year master's programs, a lot more Chinese students have been filtering into those. So uh, for that, for the UK, China's becoming more of a graduate uh, market. And you've got to remember in the United States, uh, adding some historical perspective here, back until the mid-90s, mid to, Chinese graduate students were by far the largest uh, demographic, larger of the two demographics, undergraduate and graduate students coming from China. So uh, that trend was reversed when we saw that t- kind of decade-long push from 2005 to 2015, 16 where the Huge swells of uh, undergraduate Chinese students coming to the United States happened and filled a lot of state institutions uh, to the brim with uh, in, with Chinese students, undergraduates, particularly uh, uh, places like the University of uh, Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, Urbana-Champaign, Michigan State, others that had three, four, five. 6,000 Chinese students on campus uh, to the point where the University of Illinois actually took out insurance policies in their College of Engineering and Business, I think, uh, for $65 million uh, to insure against, if there were ever a downturn uh, or a significant loss of uh, undergraduate Chinese students to their campus. Uh, And they probably paid off on that insurance policy during the pandemic. So interesting to see how the swings and roundabouts happen and change and impacts uh, demographics within particular countries. So we're now seeing uh, the UK is seeing it already uh, that more Chinese graduate students are coming than undergraduate, and we're probably going to see something similar to that here in the United States as well. Most, certainly more graduate students coming from China. We're seeing that at UNLV uh, than, um, uh, than we have in, in in at least the recent recent past. Uh, Another article from uh, the South China Morning Post um, out of Hong Kong is, in a first, more postgrads than undergrads are set to graduate in Beijing this year. So uh, they are seeing much more of a graduate market in with even within the country. So we're seeing uh, a, a shift because in the past it has been uh, a much have more heavily undergraduate market and even within China it's shifting towards uh, a postgrad market, a master's and doctoral level programs. And that's in Beijing uh, that, that's the first time that's happening there. Uh, the city's universities have expanded graduate admissions uh, in Beijing and more students are seeking higher degrees due to difficulty finding work, experts say, according to the article. And interestingly, uh, across China, and a record 11.6 million people are expected to graduate from university this year. Uh, So the, the, the market is certainly expanding. In China, a higher ed market. It's that's the kind of the impact over the last 20 years, where we've seen. Uh, just I remember going to China in the mid 90s, where every time I would visit a, a university partner campus or in Beijing in particular, Shanghai, wherever we were going, we would just see construction uh equipment everywhere massive cranes and on every campus on every in every major city just huge boom towns going on as they ch- sought to ramp up their higher education capacity and this is the fruit of that labor over the last 20 years so, as we see things develop in China, we're going to see perhaps some, a maturing of the, of the higher ed market uh, becoming more of a, a, a grad market again. Uh, whereas in the, in the early 2000s, it was strong grad. Uh, then there was a, a kind of a, a maturing of the undergraduate market, in that it uh, became uh, acceptable and, and actually encouraged for undergraduates to go overseas for, for, for degree studies and then return. Uh, Now we're seeing more staying in-country and going for graduate study before they think about going overseas. So there's a lot of dynamics at play, obviously, in China, so we uh, certainly will keep our fingers on the pulse there. Now, next topic or question of the week uh, is shifting gears back to the States and talking about um, good news coming out of the U.S. Department of State. And there's uh, two or three pieces of news that came out recently that we certainly want to highlight for everybody. And uh, f- for those of you who are in ISSS offices, uh, part of what uh, your uh, joy this past uh, week uh, was hearing the good news that wet signatures are no longer required for DS-2019s. And how, how amazing is that 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 finally happened? Uh, They've been talking about doing that for a while. Uh, I remember last August at the EdUSA forum, State Department folks were saying, yeah, we're looking into this and assessing its plausibility. And they finally, eight months later, (laughs) have decided, uh, yes, we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna make uh, wet signatures optional, uh, that students can have e-signed documents uh, when they uh, go for their appointments uh, for uh, visas to come to the United States on J-1 visas. So really encouraging to see that. So that's one part of the good news coming out of the State Department. And obviously long overdue, if you want to be uh, really blunt about it. But uh, what, what, what you've seen from, from the State Department over the years is they do tend to move fairly slowly. And part of that uh, is just the nature of the bureaucracy within the State Department. It is, is a beast sometimes and the uh, nature, nature of it. And frankly, it's a system that when you look at the u.s compared to other countries uh, with canada with the uk with australia they have third parties kind of running their visa system uh approval of visas that go through government security checks and all that but they have third parties running it there isn't a required interview so the processing is down to just the paperwork that whoever whatever group or business is conducting that review uh, for, on behalf of the government uh, is able to do so uh, in a much more timely fashion that isn't dependent on that three-minute interview at uh, the visa window. And the U.S. is fairly unique in that regard in terms of these hoops that uh, prospective students and other visitors to the United States must jump through, and that's a longer-term challenge that isn't going to get answered today and probably won't go away anytime soon but are there other options to do that if it's not an in-person? Can we now look at doing virtual and how then questions of uh, of, uh, uh, verifying uh, biometrics and all the other things that the US uh, government does uh, as part of their visa interview process, the physical visit to the embassy or consulate. Uh, The other bit of, uh, there are two other bits of news related to the State Department. So in addition to the wet signatures finally going away as a requirement uh, for interviews and documents when students enter the country and such. uh, Also, we have seen that visa, the DS-160 fee, that's the non-immigrant online application uh, that every student uh, exchange visitor has to fill out. Uh, The visa fees uh, have been at $160 for a number of years now. And there was uh, threatening, almost doubling, I think more than doubling of that amount uh, that was proposed by the State Department last year. Uh, they've uh, come to their senses, I think, and realized that would be too dramatic of an uh, increase, uh, well above um what what they what would be normally expected and uh and that it only has gone up fifteen dollars or twenty five dollars excuse me twenty five dollars uh, from one hundred and sixty to one hundred and eighty five dollars, so it could have been a whole lot worse for for uh, students that are looking to come uh, this fall uh, for studies in terms of going for visa appointments they could have been paying upwards of. Um, of uh, of I think three hundred plus dollars for uh, for a visa appointment uh, for the visa application fee, so uh, in addition to the SEVIS fee that we already know about, so that's uh, a, a and, uh, could have been worse news as we as we mentioned in the newsletter. Uh, that could have been a lot worse. So to only go up 15% as opposed to doubling, uh, I think that's that's a pretty that's a pretty good deal. And it, again, inflation does impact these things, and um, these co- these prices haven't changed in a number of years. So I guess we got to give. They are uh, they fund themselves and their activities through the visa fees they bring in. In terms of consular staffing and a lot of a lot of a lot of locations, that's dependent on the visa fees that they generate for that post. So. Uh, that's uh, it's understandable that there needed to be some increase, and we're just glad and fortunate and thankful at least that it wasn't worse than it, than it was. The third bit of good news, or, or uh, overall news, that is, was shared by. Um, uh, Secretary of State Blinken in his testimony before uh, Congress uh, a couple in the last week or so, and was f- highlighted in uh, last week's edition of Karen Fisher's Latitudes newsletter uh, that 70% of all posts globally are under a month in terms of wait times for students and other other uh, non-immigrant visa categories. So that's good news indeed, uh, particularly in the light of what's coming over the next three or four months with the summer rush. Uh, that is always the peak period for visa appointments uh, across the globe for those that are coming to the United States for study. So it's uh, encouraging to see that uh, the, um, the wait times have decreased and they will continue to dec- decrease as uh, we get closer to those summer months and hopefully be in a much more uh, realistic and robust opportunity for a good fall for uh, U.S. colleges and universities in terms of their international student intakes. So we're happy to see uh, those uh, declines in wait times. Secretary Blinken talked about it uh, as a priority and as well as on the other side of it, uh, Mm -hmm. issuing passports. And I know um, in my family that's uh, particularly important. My wife and son will be joining me on an upcoming trip to the U.K. Uh, for the BMI Global Scholarship Summit at the beginning of May, and I'll be able to bring them along. And they had my son hadn't had his uh, applied for his first passport back in February, and it finally arrived uh, right at the end of March. So we got ours within eight weeks, I think. So um, happy that uh, passport prior passport issuance is a uh, priority, and apparently at a record uh, record demand for passports. So that's encouraging to see that. Uh, U.S. has got uh, that travel itch too. We we want to get out and travel again. Uh, like we haven't before. So good to see more people doing that. So uh, uh, some real positive news coming out of the State Department this week. so we gotta we gotta uh, be thankful for those opportunities to celebrate. Uh, our colleagues who work uh, in the state Department, uh, particularly those within Education USA and uh, Education and Cultural Affairs uh, Bureau at state who do the hard work on, on, the, on the ground uh, around the world uh, but also in DC so looking forward to catching up with them at NAFsa and as those of you that uh, follow uh, Education USA news uh, they are not having an Edu USA forum this uh, summer in August uh, because NAFsa is in DC. They're bringing all their Reacts, all 13, uh, well, 12, uh, 12, I think, maybe. I think probably 12 REACs. Uh, they've got a couple of vacancies, maybe three vacancies right now. Uh, so we'll have uh, all the React's will be in town, 50-plus advisors, probably more that, w- that they'll be sponsoring, and then another group of advisors that always come through their posts, either through Fulbright Commissions or Embassies or Consulates, uh, where they're posted will be able to come to NAFSA as well. So it's going to be a fairly large EDUSA pavilion this year, I think. NAFS in terms of staffing and a lot more opportunities to interact with them. The country fair should be should be quite good as well. The Embassy Dialogue Committees uh, typically been responsible for that. It didn't happen last year. We're hoping it does this year. I uh, Haven't had confirmation on that yet, but hopefully it will. Uh, we have um, uh, so with with everything happening with EDUSA and not having their own forum in August, uh, you can count on uh, greater representation there. Uh, amongst the advisors and obviously all Reacts will be in attendance. So hoping for some great conversations in D.C. uh, for NAFSA at the end of May, beginning of June. So that's our second question. Let's move on to the third and final. And this one is is is, is, for those of you who know the company, SMIE Consulting, What we do, the first part of that is social media and international ed consulting. And I'm always appreciative of organizations, uh, particularly Inted in the past, has done a number of pieces on this. Uh, Obviously, the tech companies like Sonorbis that we talked about earlier, they always do pieces on uh, the overlap between social media and international ed. And uh, certainly, international ed has um, become increasingly uh, dependent on uh, certainly during the pandemic but even before the pandemic uh, virtual tools were increasingly being used to reach students where they are in the world because not everybody can travel to 35 40 countries every year to recruit students Uh, very few do and have budget for it but uh, those who uh, still want to have a global reach relied heavily on social and virtual tools to reach students and that uh, will is is certainly continuing Uh, what you will see differently uh, is uh, when, is we have to be aware of how things might change politically and how politics impacts what we do in international education. That's always something we need to have forefront of our minds as we're uh, approaching uh, uh, strategies for engagement with students around the world is what tools are we using? And obviously, as we talked about with China earlier, we know that um, our Western social media isn't accessible to the greater majority of population in China unless they have a VPN, and that uh, we need to we need to use the platforms and tools that they use. One of the tools, not necessarily for China, because China has, um, as we as the as most everybody in the U.S. over the last few weeks have heard the congressional testimonies about TikTok and the impact of that that program of that social media platform uh, is seen as a potential threat. There are 150 million users in the United States, the majority of them young people, college-age population. So TikTok has become an important tool to reach prospective students uh, for a number of universities. uh, Where there has been pushback, obviously, has been uh, at the state level, where over half of US states now have some sort of ban on using TikTok on a university or official devices, uh, phones uh, from the university. Uh, or college that are state-owned colleges or universities. So that has been a significant challenge for some institutions to reaching prospective students. And this applies not just domestically but internationally as well, uh, since TikTok is a global platform. Uh, it's used in many countries. Uh, there's a different version of it. Uh, the, the parent company of uh, TikTok, ByteDance, in China, has another version of it, Douyan. uh That is the short form video platform equivalent of TikTok, or the, kind of the mother of TikTok uh, in China. And our version here is uh, something uh, something that we, we look to as we develop our own tools uh, for reaching students, we got to be aware of uh, places where we might want to use one tool It might not be uh, a, a, the most popular tool or even an, allowed in certain countries, so you have to know that. Right now, TikTok is on the chopping block uh, for, uh, for potential bans, not just among governments. I mean, Western governments have almost uh, all uh, banned TikTok on government devices. You've seen the U.S. do that. Canada's done that. UK's done that. New Zealand, Australia's done it. Uh, others have, are joining as well. Where government devices can't use it, but we're also seeing now uh, the that there are countries that may be banning it outright. And the U.S. is one of those countries that might, that might be happening in. So what we're talking about here with TikTok uh, in the U.S. is. One of the things the Congress is is considering, as well as the Biden administration, is the ability to to ban uh, TikTok on all app stores uh, in within the U.S. Uh, so that we can't use it, and we might be able to if we have a VPN that says we're in uh, in Vietnam or some other country that doesn't ban it yet. Maybe that happens. I don't know, but. Uh, the, that's not a practical reality for most most people who want it. Uh, and certainly if the majority of your population is not on it that you're targeting, then you don't want to be using it necessarily to reach, reach prospective students. So ICEF Monitor has done a great article this week on uh, what are the alternatives to TikTok. And in it they speak about uh, that uh, talk about all the bans amongst governments uh, that right now the only countries that ban it outright, Uh, I have been India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, uh, but we're considering it in the U.S., as we talked about, uh, that there are options, and that's something for those of you who are using these short-form videos, um, the good news is it's not the only, only platform out there uh and internationally there uh, you may still be able to do it uh if you unless you have an outright ban uh, from using your own maybe you can use your own device but in other countries where it's still uh, if it's a market that still has access to TikTok, you might be able to use that as a still a way to reach those students uh, again without the government bans Uh, so we'll see what happens um, but having alternatives alternative platforms on which you can use short form video so the concept of Having that t- content uh, that will play well uh, in short form on on apps like TikTok uh, is is an absolutely essential one. We know the attention span of our target audiences tend to be fairly fairly limited, and they're not going to watch a 25-30 minute video. They're going to want something short and snappy, and really uh, speaks to them directly and keeps them on the hook for future videos that they can like you, and then they'll see more of your videos in their in their uh, in their feeds. So. Oh, what are the alternatives? Uh, we've heard about Reels. Uh, that has been around for a couple, f- about four or five years now. Uh, started on Instagram, also is on Facebook. of the same company uh, from Meta, Facebook and Instagram Reels. Um, they that is short form video as well, as well as YouTube Shorts. YouTube's uh, the world's largest video platform has gotten in on that short form game as well, and has been particularly marketing their f- short versions of their videos. Uh, and making that uh, to, to, um, pl- to channels and, and producers or creator, con- creators of content, this kind of short form option for them so that they can compete with, um, with, uh, with Instagram and TikTok. And now that'll mean that uh, if, if one of those goes away, uh, Instagram and YouTube shorts might be the only, reels and shorts might be the only two that you have to reach your target audiences. So, Will, that, will there be others that pop up? I'm sure there will. There always is a next great thing coming, and we're probably due for something uh, that may be out now that might be coming on the radar soon, but it hasn't exploded yet in the United States that might be able to compete and take advantage of TikTok's potential demise in the United States. We'll see what happens there. But the stats from TikTok about just how significant uh, that, that platform is right now. Uh, outside of the United States, uh where there are actually 113 million users uh we have um indonesia has almost as many tiktok users as we do so if you're active in recruiting in indonesia tiktok is probably something you're going to be using brazil 82 million people are using it in brazil mexico 57 million uh, Russia, 54 million, maybe not as, as, as popular a market. Vietnam, almost 50 million. Philippines, 43 million. Thailand, 40 million. Turkey, 29 million. Saudi Arabia, 26 million. So huge markets out there uh, that are also some of the top markets to the United States with the exception of Russia. Uh, you see uh, all of those countries on that list are prime markets for the United States uh, in terms of recruiting international students uh, to, our, to our colleges and universities. So uh, you see that that potentially going away as a market for us in the United States could be significant in terms of our ability to reach uh, students. If we can no longer use TikTok in the United States, maybe we only use it when we're traveling in those countries on our own personal devices to reach students uh, in those key markets. Or we have, if we have in-country reps, maybe we funnel all of our content specific to those markets through them uh, to reach students directly. So there's a lot of um, a lot of pressure and uncertainty at the, at this point in time as it relates to TikTok. In terms of what do we do if it, if, if it if it does go away as an option in the United States, but we do need to be prepared. And um, kudos to uh, kudos to the folks at ICEF uh, Global for and the ISF Monitor for putting out this uh, this report this week that details those um, those important de- those important reference points for us all. So that's all we have for you this week on the roundup. I want to thank you for being a part of the conversation, and we look forward to chatting with you again in the weeks and months to come. So until next week. Have a wonderful day. Cheers.